Tommy, you can't do this. You don't bump guys. You're not like those animals back there. It's not right, Tom. They can't make us do this. It's the wrong situation. They can't make us different people than we are. We're not muscle, Tom. I, I, I never killed anybody. I used a little information for a chisel, that's all. It's my nature, Tom. I, 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 I can't help it. Somebody hits me an angle, I play it. I don't, I don't deserve to die for that. Do you think I do? I'm just a grifter, huh, Tom? I'm a nobody. But I'll tell you what, I never crossed a friend, huh, Tom? I never killed anybody, never crossed a friend. No, you all bet. We're not like those animals. This is not us. This is, this is, this is a half dream. It's a dream, Tommy. I'm praying to you. I can't die. I can't die. I'm here in the woods. Like a dumb animal. In the woods like a dumb animal! Like a like a like a dumb animal! I can't I can't I can't die out here in the woods! Like a dumb animal! I can't die! I'm praying to you! Look at your heart! I'm praying to you! Look in your heart. I'm praying to you. 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 Look in your heart. Look in your heart. You can't come in. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello everyone and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 264, Miller's Crossing. And this is listener request number 24, brought to us by Ryan. What's the rumpus? Oh, I know. That is such a bizarre phrase. I think they just made it up. For this movie, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like the Coens made up a lot of that stuff. Some yeah. of it's like variations on real slang. I was like, is this regional dialect? <laughs> I should thank Ryan because uh, I had watched this movie one time like 15 years ago and I was like, okay on it. But I bought the Criterion just because I knew we were doing this and I, I watched it three times. <laughs> <laughs> I I've enjoyed it quite a bit getting back into this world. I was in a similar place. I watched it years ago one time. And now have watched it a couple of times for the show and have a, a new appreciation for it. We're, of course, talking about the underrated classic written, directed, produced by the Cohen brothers, Joel and Ethan. Sort of an amalgam or a, an homage or a pastiche of some Dashiell Hammett work, specifically 
Red Harvest and Glass Key. He was a writer of some noir style gotcha. literature. Sort of in the hard boiled. In the Raymond Chandler vein, James M. Kane, people like that of the time. This isn't a specific adaptation of any of his stories, but it has elements of some of those. So before we get into Miller's Crossing, there's a couple of things to to cross off the list since it's been a l- little while since we last spoke. We had a, a little bit of a, an extra delay, which is always the case I know. when we take time off. Every time we take time off for ourselves, then we're forced to take off more time right afterwards. This is like the third or fourth time that's happened. I don't know. Life happens. There's just things. Yeah, Matt, probably still spreading COVID everywhere. I'm, I'm way outside the CDC guidelines at this point. <laughs> <laughs> what we referenced before was that there was going to be a little bit of an update regarding listener requests. We're obviously covering Ryan's right now. So what we're going to do is next month for May, we're going to do a listener request for Nikki for her birthday, which we promised. And then in June, instead of doing One Trashy Summer, I know everyone's going to be so disappointed. We're not going to do it. We're going to do a a month of listener requests to try to catch back up. People just throwing their phones right now. (laughs) No One Trashy Summer. (laughs) Life over. We know from the download numbers that One Trashy Summer isn't always the most popular month anyway. People not that interested. Plus... It's popular for us. We've done it for three years now. We're on our fourth Trashy Summer. You're starting to get into, like, really questionable material. (laughs) We like to (laughs) try to keep our sexism casual. Yeah. (laughs) We don't want to push it too far. That's right. With our comments. Yeah. So in June, we will have listener requests from Jade, Theodore, Christy, and Brian. And then we'll pick back up with Peter in August, Shane in September, and then Bill in either November or December. So Good technically, Lord. we could squeeze in one more somewhere. This whole freaking show is for the listeners now. Basically. <laughs> what a timetable. But the reason I wanted to run through everybody's name is... I like the good old days when it was just for us. If you didn't hear your name and you feel like you did submit a listener request, it's possible that it's slipped through the cracks, that I didn't have it written down or it's something. It's still uh, sitting in the DMs. So if you hear the sound of my voice and you didn't hear your name, then reach out, slide back into those DMs yeah. and be like, hey, you forgot this and I can get it back in there. Because right now, those are the only ones that we have for the rest of the year. Just those. And after we do this year, God damn it, there's not going to be any more <laughs> listener requests. <laughs> 2023 we're going back to just us unless they request something that's already on the list no okay (laughs) we're not acknowledging it all right (laughs) no just let us know if you're not on that list and then you can get re-added but yeah june's gonna be a big month for our listeners wild times so the other thing that happened in our absence after our big recording day were the academy awards which we previewed in our one give us a second i didn't really want to get into the Will Smith thing, or even the winners necessarily. The thing that really I wanted to talk about that was just really bothering me was <laughs> the way that people react to jokes on Twitter now from the Academy Awards, which I guess sort of ties in with Will Smith reacting to a joke. But the Oscars are so lame and benign and vanilla and take I know. no risks at all. And yet people on Twitter act as if 
And these are people that I would assume are like mature and adults. They can't stand the fact that like the mildest jokes are made at the expense of the movies that are nominated or God forbid the thing that happened with the seat filler joke about Kirsten Dunst. I mean, people, you're putting me in a position where I have to defend Amy Schumer, who you know that I can't stand. <laughs> Is, are you on the supposedly record? Supposedly, she was getting death threats over. It's like, really? Oh, my gosh. First of all, they approved yeah. these things ahead of time. Of course, they already knew that this joke was going to be happening. And people were like, oh, Jesse Plemons looks like he's upset. It's like, well, he's a fucking actor. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing a bit, and he's acting. Obviously, the joke was probably pitched as Jesse Plemons being the seat filler, and they're like, that's a little too close to home. Wrestling's Wait, fake, you jackass. Let's pretend that the beautiful woman, Kirsten Dunst, is the seat filler, which doesn't even make sense. I mean, come on. And then the power of the dog being long or boring or whatever the joke was, people like can't believe that the hosts are making fun of the movies that are nominated. They should be celebrating these what movies. What the fuck? And blow. I, that's been a part of it the whole time. I know. <laughs> and these jokes are so tame. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, you said it before the show. I think you're 100% right. Twitter has just ruined everyone's lives. I get that it's not a roast, and I feel like they shouldn't just pick on one movie the whole night or anything like that. But, I mean, come on, people. It's just a joke. Like, they're not going to make fun of We Bought a Zoo. I don't think that was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. You can't make any jokes that would even potentially offend anyone in the slightest that have any edge to them whatsoever. It's so boring. The Oscars were unwatchable. I don't know how like comedy can be a thing now. It can't. Right. <laughs> Everyone's upset about everything. I know. And it's like, okay, so they make it the lamest Oscars you could ever imagine. I know. People are still offended by but these jokes. I don't know if I've ever gotten to the Best Picture winner announcement and have been as checked out as I was this time around. And it's well, been like well, a... Well, clearly, everything that came after a certain point was overshadowed. Well, that's true. Yeah, it did just have this weird I don't think, feeling. I don't think that. people after the Oscars were really Googling, like, hey, what is this Coda movie? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they were Googling something else. Yeah, well... There were a lot of memes, for I think sure. the spotlight was taken from everybody else, which is a shame, and I don't really want to get into it. I, I was like, It was just bizarre. I was annoyed and sort of like lashed out on Twitter about it. <laughs> and I feel like Will Smith should have been thrown out. I, I, it was I, ridiculous that it was allowed to keep going like that. If somebody does something that you then decide is worth banning them for 10 years I, It's for, crazy. How I, do they not I, get thrown right. out? Right. I don't know how they would not be like, security... We just had an act of violence occur. It's just bizarre. I do think that some of the overreaction after the fact that was still going on for a week or two, like the articles where people would be like, well, he should give the Oscar back or they should take the Oscar. It's like, yeah, that's dumb. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And honestly, I actually feel like the even the banning thing is kind of stupid. I think the appropriate thing would have been you remove him from the building when the incident happens. That's like the No, I think they should they they need to ban them because you can't have the message that people can just do whatever they want. No, I yeah, that's true. If you don't like a joke because if you wanted to like go up to Chris Rock backstage or after the show or something and confront him in whatever way. Yeah. That's one thing, but to go onto the stage and and do that on television, it just it sends this weird message. I know. And I would have been fine if they banned him for life. 
I think that he should still be eligible to be nominated, although yeah. it's not like he's fucking Daniel Day-Lewis. I doubt he's going to win another <laughs> Oscar. But the whole th- being there in person thing, I think you like lose the privilege. Not that it's like some great treat. Exactly. I mean, the is whole it? event <laughs> is just like not a spectacle at all anymore, and that was just hammered home to me even more so this year. I don't think that everything Kimmel was trying to do with it was working, but I still felt like he got what the show should be like. Or at least like what they should try to go for. And now it just feels like after he stopped hosting, a a complete drop-off. Well, the no-host thing, I think, backfired big time. Yeah. And they realized that was a mistake. The ratings were obviously up from last year, but not to like a significant degree, really. Right. It's still And I mean, last year's event was like the COVID one where it was just like barely an event. They tried to frame some articles being like, well, it was up 30% or whatever from last year, or whatever. <laughs> but it's still like way lower than where it used to be. Sure. I don't know. There's no way to fix it. I don't really want to turn it into that. But no, I know. I was just blown it's away just by stuff that I see every year, which is the people crying about their darling movies getting made fun of in tongue-in-cheek, silly ways. It's like, oh, this movie's long, this movie's boring, whatever. I liked The Power of the Dog. I, I put it in my top 10, as did you. It's yeah, it's still fun even, to goof on. Yeah, it's like, who cares? They're just making a joke about yeah, it. Yeah, really. Like, oh, shut up. It doesn't mean that the movie sucks. <laughs> Same. Next year, Gervais. <laughs> yeah, give these celebrities what they deserve. Yeah. <laughs> a thorough just roasting. Just a complete ripping by <laughs> Ricky Gervais. There's which, no way they're ever going to let Gervais no. host the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> even when people were sort of less sensitive about this stuff and he would host the Golden Globes, a lot of people would be pissed the next day. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, everyone's like, the envelope. we don't want this guy making fun of our celebrities, and it's like, why not? <laughs> it's fun. All right, I'm sick of getting the hi-hat. Yeah. Let's jump into Miller's Crossing before we get too carried away with the Oscars yet again. <laughs> I was actually very tempted to jump on and record a solo pod about the Oscars after the fact. Yeah. And then I thought better of it, and I was like, you know what? I know. I really don't like going down the path of bashing it either, because ultimately, I do want it to be fun. (laughs) I look forward to it every year. I want it to be like a good time and be something that people care about. So I I don't really want to jump on the bash the Oscars bandwagon. Two things benefited Coda, though, which is the Will Smith slap, because... Otherwise, people would have been trashing Coda and been like, how could this have won Best Picture? And the other thing is that it didn't have some weird stance on race, (laughs) like Green Book. Oh, yeah. Or Crash or something. So it was like... Or like the La La Land Moonlight thing didn't happen this year. (laughs) It was like a very like saccharine, sweet, heartwarming type movie that a lot of more jaded people aren't going to appreciate. Plus, it didn't really have like the technical prowess as something like The Power of the Dog or dune or something like that sure so people probably didn't love it but there wasn't space for complaining about it in the aftermath True. because everyone right. was preoccupied with something else <laughs> yeah so coda just sort of slipped under the radar it does feel like one of those ones where it's like a couple years from now i'll be like what one best picture in 2020 i feel like i'm like that for most of i know the last <laughs> yeah. 10 years it's a odd assortment of films right. all over the map okay the budget for miller's crossing was somewhere between 10 to 14 million and the box office was only 5 million. Although the Coen brothers have stated that the budget was actually substantially less than what is reported. So it's sort of unknown. I, I Interesting. Guess. Okay. But the movie did not really make a big impression at the time. This was, I think 
Was this like Gabriel Byrne's like first big movie? And maybe I think this John is his Turturro? first American movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not that I don't know if John Turturro is ever like putting butts in seats, but he's in a shitload of movies. It is weird watching this because you're like, well, wow, Gabriel Byrne, you kind of forget about him, but he did have like a moment where he was kind of, I know it wasn't like during this movie, but <laughs> later in the 90s where he was kind of a big name, right? There was a Gabriel Byrne big era. Big Chase. Okay. <laughs> Slightly less than. You're throwing big name out. Yeah, like yeah. He's fucking Brad Pitt or no, something. No, no, no. <laughs> what is his biggest movie, do you think? The Usual Suspects? That's Yeah, that's probably what I would say. They actually filmed this movie down in New Orleans in 1989 because a lot of the sections of the city at that point had not been gentrified, had not been changed, had not been updated. And it actually ties in with what I talked about in plenty of other episodes about the used feeling 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. The stuff that hadn't been changed yet. And so they were able to find these areas that just looked like they were from the 20s. And the right. architecture was the same and everything looked the same. And they didn't have to like build sets or change things. Before we go any further, we should point out that we both watched the Criterion edition that just came out. I do know that supposedly there is a slight edit to the film that is different from the theatrical cut or the other cut that's available on Blu-ray that people are familiar with. I'm not like a big lunatic when it comes to that stuff. I think they may have cut one line of dialogue out or wow. something like okay. that. Obviously, the Coens approved it. It's like an approved version. Yeah. But... It is odd that Criterion doesn't point that out anywhere or mention it, which is strange. Yeah. Maybe they weren't even aware that this was like a different edit. I don't know. I don't know. know. This is news to me, so. I don't even know what the line was. I can't remember. (laughs) I I will say I didn't notice it from my 15 years, (laughs) my 15 year gap of watching this movie. Barry Sonnenfeld was the director of photography who would go on to direct the Men in Black movies, speaking of Will Smith. Wow. And uh, several other things. He became kind of a bigger director for a while. In September of 1990, when the film was released, you had three organized crime mob-type movies released. You had Goodfellas, famously, which came out basically at the same time as Miller's Crossing. And then you also had Abel Farrar's King of New York. Three completely different approaches to organized crime. And I think that because of that bad timing, this movie sort of went under the radar. Because, look, 1990 was a big, busy year. I don't know that this would have necessarily been nominated for Best Picture, but I think this is a movie that the Oscars could have gotten interested in if it had sure. come out at the right moment. But it just got overshadowed yeah. by other stuff. It's definitely like well-crafted, and it seems like it has a lot of references to other movies, which film people like. Yeah, Miller's Crossing quotes many other notable gangster films and films noir. Many situations, characters, and dialogue are derived from the work of Dashiell Hammett, which I mentioned, particularly his 1931 novel, The Glass Key, which had been adapted a couple of times before, one of which I've seen with Veronica Lake. That one, I think, came out in the 40s, but there was one in the 30s as well. There's also some references to Jean-Pierre Melville, The Godfather, The Third Man, oh yeah, other stuff like that, a lot of other notable movies notable crime movies but the thing that sort of distinguishes this from goodfellas or king of new york which are more modern films but also much more in your face violent wild the violence is like tarantino violence this is like a a fable yeah a fairy tale the story is it's sort of light at times right it has that unique cohen humor and approach to it 
It doesn't really seem gritty. It's dense. Yeah. The plot is hard to unravel. And I think it, it does reward multiple viewings. I think that's probably why you watched it three times. I was watching the interview on the Criterion Blu-ray with Gabriel Byrne and John Turturro, and they talked about how big the script was. And if yeah. they had like filmed it all, it would have been like seven hours long. Yeah, and they had to also deliver the dialogue fast. Oh, yeah. That one crazy that, hour runtime. That, that one scene with Steve Buscemi. Yeah. When he's talking to uh, the main character. The it, main character. Tom. Tom, yeah. It's wild, though. The lines that he is spitting out, like lightning quick. It's nearly inscrutable, and it's Coen Brothers magic decked out in the fast paced, stylized dialogue. There's a man at the center, like so many others from the Coens, Tom Regan, played by Gabriel Byrne. A man who floats through the narrative, alternating between bad luck and good. And it's ultimately him who we focus on trying to figure out his motives. Yeah, there's definitely an intrigue to it. Even by the end of the movie, you don't really know. It's it's definitely left ambiguous, I would say. There's also parts of the film where you're trying to decipher exactly what's happening and exactly how you should take it. Because there's that satirical nature of the Coen brothers. So you're not quite sure if you're watching a satire or a farce at right. times. Yeah. Because there is a silliness to it, but also a seriousness. It's I th- think that threw me off the first time I ever watched it. Like the Casper character. Yeah. Like it, it, he just seems like goofy. Right. There's always like a, a little bit of, of that weird balance. And it's something that only the Coen brothers seem to be able to pull off in right. this way, consistently at least. It is weird. I know that Joel just did the tragedy of Macbeth, and it seems like Ethan's got his own project. I've heard that their partnership is essentially done. Wow. Although the interview on the Blu-ray said it was filmed in 2021. Yeah, yeah. I One of them maybe, is wearing like a COVID mask. I don't know like what the, room. the deal is there, but it seems like maybe Ethan likes more of the broad comedy, because I think his project is some sort of a broad comedy of some okay. kind. And Joel, of course, did the deathly serious Macbeth adaptation. This was their third film after Blood Simple and Raising Arizona, so they were still sort of an unknown commodity. It wasn't like how it is now, where you make two movies and immediately are directing Spider-Man or something like that. Yeah, I sort of discovered that. I didn't realize it was that early in their career. I I guess I thought they had had a few more releases before this, but yeah, this is is like really early Coen Brothers. And this wasn't the only time in their career where they would take one of these noir-style, hard-boiled novelists, detective mystery stories, and sort of put their own spin on it. Raymond Chandler was a huge influence on The Big Lebowski. Sure, yeah. James M. Kane was a big influence on The Man Who Wasn't There, and this was their stab at Dashiell Hammett. It's interesting, though, when you go back, a lot of those guys got involved with films. Double Indemnity is a James M. Kane book that... Chandler wrote the screenplay wow. for and adapted for the movie. So they were all sort of in the mix, like doing stuff like that. Kane also wrote Mildred Pierce and oh. the, the Postman Always Rings Twice. Oof. Good stuff. Chandler obviously wrote like a lot of the Philip Marlowe. Yeah, that's material. right. But one of the, the the things is like John Polito, who plays Casper, he always brings up this weird obsession with ethics within this <laughs> underground crime world. Yeah. And so it injects the movie with this interesting spin on philosophy and morality and loyalty in this 
underground world. And then Tom is right at the center of that. And you're not really sure where his loyalties lie. And it's one of those performances from Byrne where he's doing a lot of like thinking and right. contemplative material there. And he's That's not the as emotive. Yeah. Learn something from him. Don't talk. Think. <laughs> I'm talking about ethics. You know I'm a sporting man. I like to lay the occasional bet. <laughs> but I ain't that sporting. When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three-to-one favor to throw a goddamn fight. I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at three-to-one. But every time I lay a bet with a son of a bitch, Bernie Birnbaum, before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. The Sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information. I fixed the fight. Out of town money comes pouring in. The odds go straight to hell. I don't know who's selling to it. Maybe the Los Angeles combine. I don't know. The point is, Bernie ain't satisfied with the honest dollar he can make off the Vic. He ain't satisfied with the business I do on his book. He is selling tips on how I bet. And that means part of the payoff that should be riding on my hip is riding on someone else's. So, back we go to these questions. Friendship, character, ethics. So it's clear what I'm saying. As mud. It's getting so a businessman can't expect no return from a fixed fight. Now, if you can't trust a fix, what can you trust? For a good return, you gotta go betting on chance. And then, you're back with anarchy. Right back in the jungle. That's why ethics is important. What separates us from the uh, animals, the uh, beasts of burden, beasts of prey, ethics. Whereas uh, Bernie Birnbaum is a horse of a different color, ethics-wise. As in, he ain't got any. You sure it's Bernie selling you out? It ain't elves. You playing anyone else's book? Uh, I lay an occasional bet with Mink LaRue. Yeah, but it ain't Mink. I'll vouch for that. How do you know? It ain't Mink. Uh, Mink is Eddie Dane's boy. Of course, the Dane always knows about the fix. And what the hell is that supposed to mean? Let it drift. All it means is a lot of people know. I guess you ain't been listening. Sure, other people know. <laughs> That's why we gotta go to this question of character, to determine just who exactly is chiseling in on my fix. And that's how we know that it's Bernie Birnbaum, the schmata kid. Cause ethically, he's kinda shaky. I'm sick of getting the high hat. You pay off for protection just like everyone else. As far as I know and what I don't know in this town ain't worth knowing, the cops haven't closed any of your dives and the DA hasn't touched any of your rackets. You haven't bought any license to kill bookies and today I ain't selling any. So take your flunky and dangle. Tom Regan, played by Byrne, is the right-hand man for Irish mobster Leo O'Banion, played by Albert Finney a political boss who runs an unnamed U.S. city during Prohibition. The script notes it to be 1929, and like I said, it was filmed in New Orleans, but there really isn't any indication in the film that it's actually supposed to be New Orleans. I don't really think it is. Uh, Yeah. Nobody really talks in an accent of any kind or anything. I think it's just supposed to be an anonymous city. Uh Uh-huh. 
I would say right away you do get the sense of this sort of history with Tom and Leo that Tom gets special treatment that the rest of Leo's crew doesn't really get. He doesn't kiss Leo's ass. He tells him straight. Right. It seems like they go back a long way. A political boss is somebody who isn't really elected but has a tremendous amount of power over institutions. It is sort of a variation on organized crime because it's inherently usually corrupt. Right. (laughs) Originally, Trey Wilson was supposed to play the part of Leo O'Banion. Trey Wilson appeared in Raising Arizona. I think a lot of people would also maybe know him as the manager, Skip, in Bull Durham. Oh, yeah. But he died in 1989 at the age of 40. Shit. And so Albert Finney, this world-renowned, famous actor with a lot of big stuff like Tom Jones or Saturday night and Sunday morning, stuff like that from the 60s, comes in out of nowhere, like on almost no notice, and takes over this role. He's awesome in it, too. The scene at the house with him is just unbelievable. Originally, the Coens weren't completely sold on Byrne using his Irish accent, even though he's supposed to be like an Irish gangster. Okay. And he was like, look, here's how I do it with the accent. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Immediately, they're like, yeah, this makes sense. That's right. (laughs) Leo's ascendant rival, the Italian gangster Johnny Caspar, played by John Polito, makes known his intentions to kill bookie Bernie Birnbaum, played by John Totoro, although we don't see him yet, whom he suspects of profiting off of his match-fixing scheme. So Caspar... Wants to make an honest living from match fixing, which is the funny thing. Yeah. He's like, I should be entitled to a certain amount of money since I'm fixing these fights. But somebody's chiseling in and dropping the odds down. Yep. I don't really know everything about betting, but I thought if you got that bet in when the odds were a certain way, I don't know. how. Every man must have a code. That's essentially Caspar's take on things. Yeah. That even though they work in this crime world, that there's there's a code. There's rules still. Yeah. (laughs) I actually think it's a pretty good performance. He oozes slime ball. He's just right, constantly yeah. sweaty over <laughs> the top. And it brings a fun comedic element to the proceedings as well. And he would sort of go on to be a Cohen regular. He played the private, private eye in yeah, right. Big Lebowski. Yes. <laughs> What's Bunny's real name? <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Looking for Tara Reid. <laughs> He's rocking like a pretty cool pencil-thin mustache the whole time. I actually had a fall. I would say probably like the fall of 2005, maybe, I had a pencil-thin mustache. Really? A few weeks. That's frightening. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it was real frightening because I bought like dye and I dyed it black, so it was super dark. (laughs) Yeah. What was the statement? Don't talk to me. (laughs) Ladies, run away. Yeah, exactly. And the best was I remember being in some writing class in college or something and like we had to break off into pairs to like read each other's work and then talk about it so i'm like with some girl and i'm just like so odd looking she's like is this real are you really going for this i guess yeah i only kept it for like a week or two. i get it yep i, I had like some this... runs with some weird facial hair look. i just thought yeah. it would be funny like it was a right, goof, right like yeah. how do you explain it to people who aren't a part of the goof? and then you are explaining it and then they're still not thinking it's funny <laughs> That's like this podcast. Right, yeah. That's like my whole life. <laughs> oh, God. So Leah's presented with this 
proposal to rub out Bernie, who Caspar thinks is chiseling in on his fix. However, Leo is romantically entangled with Bernie's sister, Verna, who will be played by Marsha Gay Harden. So he extends protection to Bernie as a favor to Verna, setting off Caspar to vow revenge. So there's a lot to take just from this opening scene, and you, you get like a lot thrown at you that will come into play, but there's a subtlety Well, and it's to not all too. clear yet why Leo's protecting this guy, right? Is that revealed right in the opening scene? No, yeah. but that, that's essentially why. But there are things in this film that sort of fly under the radar, I think, and can get lost in the rapid-fire dialogue, and then the way that they talk, too, yes. obscures some of the meaning sometimes. But they refer to... Mink, a character that will only appear in one scene, played by Steve Buscemi, as the Dane's boy. Right. Dane is Caspar's right-hand man. And so there's this homosexual love triangle in this film that I would imagine that a lot of people don't even really notice at first or pick up on. Right. I definitely think you need to watch it more than once to even really fully grasp this. Well, yeah. I think when Tom is talking to Caspar privately about love being a factor... And he can only really be talking about Dane and Mink. Right. Yeah, I think that it is pretty straightforward, but yeah, yeah, the whole no. thing with Bernie's involvement in it, too. Right. And I know that Totoro wanted to film a scene of him and Mink in bed together okay. to really like hammer right. it home, but it, it never really happened, I guess. But that makes it more clear, at least where some of the characters are coming from, because Bernie's involvement in it is always sort of a mystery, but I think the clues come in with, Right. What he says about his own sister yeah. <laughs> later. <laughs> Almost immediately, the seed is planted by, in this instance, Leo. But later, this will be something that Tom latches onto. Because he says, the Dane always knows about the fix, too. Yes. And Casper dismisses this information like, well, he's my right-hand man. He, he knows about the fix, but he's reliable. He's trustworthy. We go back a long way. Some great stuff said right away. The hi-hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Giving me the hi-hat, kid. Your fancy pants, all of use. <laughs> but essentially, Tom seems to disapprove of Leo's choice here. He thinks that it's worth giving up Bernie just to keep the peace, but that potentially Leo is being blinded by love, his feelings for Verna, and not seeing what's best for business. As mentioned before, I think a big part of Miller's Crossing is trying to decipher Tom's motives. He's very much an enigma throughout the film. But he's not perfect because he's got these gambling debts to a bookie named Lazar who remains unseen and off screen for yeah. the duration of the film, but he sort of looms over everything. Tom's really uh, chasing it. <laughs> he just yeah. cannot catch a break with this. Throwing it's good money after bad. Uncut gems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another thing in this movie that I guess you could have a lot of interpretations of, and it, it comes up in different ways, is this goddamn fucking hat. Yeah. His hat is constantly being knocked off his head, picked up, put back on, taken off, right. put on, taken off. He has a dream about the hat. The yeah. opening of the movie is the hat flying through the woods, which is the first thing that the Coens saw in their heads when they were like, let's start there. Right. <laughs> it's this fucking hat. And I don't really know exactly what we're supposed to take from the hat. I guess there's probably interpretations out there i don't know but you mentioned it being knocked off because he's being punched or whatever i mean i know it's like a noir thing to have the hero get knocked out but tom takes an ass beating in this movie yeah cte all over <laughs> it's the place. crazy 
He's put in concussion protocol. Going from the beginning when you have that opening credit sequence, that music that's playing, it almost seems like Scottish like folklore music. Like it it seems like Irish. Yeah, Irish, okay. It seems like well, they're similar. <laughs> oh god. It kind of seems like like the music that would play in like Braveheart before everything bad starts happening. Yeah. Like the happy time in Braveheart, <laughs> which is sort of like a weird I don't know, there's a lot of suspenseful orchestral score that plays in in the movie, but that song definitely like stands out. Yeah, the composer was Carter Burwell. He does sort of like a, a take off of some traditional Irish music. But yeah, I, it never really like ramps up though. Right. It's just sort of a constant. Things are far more complicated than they would first appear though, because Tom is also seeing Verna, unbeknownst to Leo, of course. I do like when Tom is trying to convince Leo of seeing things his way and he's giving him that speech about bernie being a grifter and there's just this ruthlessness to tom that's so funny sometimes when he's talking about bernie or verna oh yeah though he's carrying on a sexual relationship with verna right oh (laughs) i love this anytime it's in a movie this whole thing where two characters have sex but then they just basically act like they hate each other yeah (laughs) it's like one of my favorite things in movies (laughs) it's like looking in a mirror for you (laughs) yeah leo shows up at tom's house when verna's there that's right and they're having this conversation because leo's been looking for verna he doesn't know where she is he actually has hired this guy rug daniels to tailor poor rug so, so tom starts getting nervous and then at one point tom's just like leo if she's such an angel why are you looking for her at four o'clock in the morning <laughs> and there is a part where other people saw tom with verna the night before because one of the other dudes says it to him like you were with verna yeah. I don't know. It just seems like word would get around, but... Well, they don't know the, ex- the extent yeah. of the relationship. But this is something I wanted to bring up, which is that throughout the film, even when Tom is repeatedly being punched in the face or things look grim and bad shit keeps happening, there's this weird streak of luck that keeps happening for him. And so even though there's almost this Machiavellian right. genius mastermind quality to what it seems like tom is doing he's straight up bailed out by good luck absolutely yes and this is the first time because he thinks that rug daniels is gonna know what's going on at this point we don't even know that he's fucking verna but then it cuts to the bed and she's there after leo leaves right and then all of a sudden rug is dead and we don't know who killed him yet we never even met him. He's just a dead guy in an alley, and a little kid steals his hairpiece. Right. And you can see why he's called Rug Daniels. Tom continuing to carry on the sexual relationship with Verna, but then also is accusing Verna of killing Rug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know who killed Rug, and the actual answer to that is revealed, but it never really is fully explained right. what happened exactly. But here's somebody who potentially was following Verna around and would know about their secret love affair, and then he's just wiped out. No problem. Right. Oh, Tom, what's the rumpus? Mink. See, you got your hat back. Yeah, whatever. Not a thing, Tom. Look, if it ain't my business, I got not a thing to say. Listen, Bernie wants to see you. It's important. Yeah, well, I'm right here. I'm not made of glass. 
Yeah, but he's nervous walking around in public, Tommy. He's the right guy, but he's very nervous. I mean, who wouldn't be? Look, Mick. I mean, the spot he's in, who wouldn't be? He asked me to ask you to ask Leo to take care of him. You know, putting a good word with Leo. Leo listens to you. Not that Leo wouldn't help the Shimada anyway. A guy like Bernie, a squared you like the Shimada, a straight shooter like him. I don't get it, Mike. Well, what's to get it? It's as plain as a nose on your face. I thought you were already dance sick of yeah, Tom, that's right, but a guy could have more than one friend, can he? I mean, not that I want the Dane to know about it, but Square G like the Shimano, he's the right guy, Tom. He's a square shooter. I know he's got a mixed reputation, but for a sheenie, he's got a lot of good qualities. What's going on between you and Bernie? Nothing, Tom. We're just friends, you know, amigos. You're a fickle boy, Mink. If any Dane finds out that you got another amigo, well, I don't pack him for the understanding, Tom. Find out? How's he gonna find out? Damn it, Tom. You and me ain't even been talking. Jesus, Tom, damn it. Jesus. We're introduced to Mink, played by Steve Buscemi. Just one scene, although he's sort of a pivotal character in a lot of ways. He's certainly talked about a lot. Buscemi was basically an unknown. He would just started getting parts around this time. I think he's in, like, Tales from the Dark Side or something, the movie. Okay. A couple other things in 90. And then the big breakout being Reservoir Dogs, which I think is, like, 92. Mm-hmm. He was cast just because he could deliver his little dialogue with the most speed they just cast whoever was the fastest wow because a lot of actors couldn't even really keep up with the stuff that he was saying and he just delivers this all as like a vomit of words but it does seem so natural still yeah that's like a testament to it and what he's saying to tom in this brief little moment provides some clarity about the love triangle situation at least from tom's perspective and the way that mink is reacting lends credence to the validity of it how would the dane feel if he wasn't your only amigo or whatever right. so it seems like there is some truth to like bernie and mink having some sort of a secret thing yeah yeah and it is interesting because for a movie that came out in 1990 so you're talking 32 years ago uh-huh when homophobia was still pretty much the norm and it's taking place in the 20s when homosexuals were definitely like an underground thing and not really that open, to have it just sort of accepted in this movie and it not even really be what the like, movie's it's about. It's not even like a big deal at all. And you have one of the characters caught up in it, the Dane, is like this huge, intimidating... Scary dude. yeah, ...killer guy. And he's just like one of the dudes, and it's not really joked about. There might be like a little bit of homophobia like from yeah, some, one of the characters even, or something but even it's not with, really a thing even with like quick-witted guy like tom who has a combative relationship with the dane isn't really like taking shots at him no for that or anything really well yeah, he's true. afraid of getting beat up. right <laughs> so mink has this connection to the dane and it seems like it's possible that he could be in on the fight fixing information as well i don't really know what to make of it other than it seems like at various points in the film, that Bernie is just working alone, yeah, and it's just his thing. Although and then I, there are other times where Mink seems like he's in on it too. I do kind of agree with Bernie, though. This does seem like a low-level grift. <laughs> Why is Casper this worked up about it? I guess he just doesn't want to be taken, but I don't know. He thinks that it's breaking this code of rules yeah, yeah. that he invented. <laughs> that he's the only one that decides what it is. Bernie does seem relatively insignificant. Which is why Casper thinks he should be able to just kill him. Right, true. And if he wasn't Verna's brother, I don't he think He would that be dead, yeah. Leo would have cared at all. Absolutely. And that's what Tom can't understand. Right. Tom's like, I'm in love with Verna too. I don't care if they kill Bernie. <laughs> Leo blames Ruggs' murder on Casper, so now it seems like war is imminent. That's right. Irregardless of Bernie's status. 
Leo will not be swayed as Tom pressures him to just give up Bernie in order to avoid this war. He's already tried convincing Leo that Verna is playing him to protect her brother. I do like that everyone in the film refers to women as twists, <laughs> which I assume is derogatory, and I'm sure it will contribute to our casual sexism, <laughs> but it is funny to me. Right. Close your eyes, ladies. I'm coming through. Who's the war paid for? Go home and dry out. You don't need it for Leo, believe me. He already thinks you're the original Miss Jesus. What the hell's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? Afraid people might get the right idea? Leo's got the right idea. I like him. He's honest and he's got a heart. Then it's true what they say. Opposites attract. Do me a favor and mind your own business. This is my business. Intimidating helpless women is part of what I do. Then find one and intimidate her. Leo's upstairs getting ready to shoot himself in the foot on your account. I don't know what you're talking about. He's going to go to the mat for your brother and it's going to hurt him. I don't know Leo's business, but he's a big boy. He used to be. Look, what do you want, Tom? You want me to pretend I don't care what happens to Bernie? Well, I do. He's my brother. I don't want to see him get hurt. And if Leo wants to help out, I'll step out with him, show him a good time in return. There's no harm in that. There's a name for that kind of business arrangement. Look, I'll do what I have to do to protect Bernie. There's no reason for you to try and queer that. Regardless of what you think about me, Bernie's a decent guy. A straight shooter, huh? Square G. Yeah. Sneered him like everyone else. Just because he's different. People think he's a degenerate. People think he's scum. Well, he's not. Poor misunderstood, Ben. What is this about, Tom? You want me to stop seeing Leo? Why don't you just say so? I want you to quit spinning Leo in circles and point him where to go. I forgot that's your job, isn't it? I'll do what I have to do to protect Leo. I'm asking you politely, leave him alone. I don't have to ask. If I told him about our little dance last night, you'll pull it pretty soon, dry up. So would yours. I don't like being threatened. And I don't like being taken for a sucker. That kind of game might work with Leo, but it don't work with me. Do you think last night was just more campaigning for my brother? I can see the angles. Now, if there was a market for little old ladies, you'd have Grandma Burnbaum first in life. You're a pathetic rumhead. And I love you, Angel. <laughs> I suppose you think you raised hell. Sister, when I've raised hell, you'll know it. Did you notice Albert Finney in drag in that scene when Tom crashes into the bathroom, the ladies' room, to confront Verna at the No, I, I didn't. Uh, Albert Finney <laughs> insisted on being a matron. In that scene? <laughs> yeah. He's like the bathroom attendant. That room is drag. insane. <laughs> I do love Tom's interaction with Verna in this scene. Like, oh, it's an unbelievable scene. Right. It's a great scene. Yeah. I love that she punches him and he throws a glass at her. Like, holy shit. Well, I think he, he was missing her on purpose. Okay. I mean. Yeah. Good aim. Unless he's like Nuke Lelouch. I mean, that it was a wild throw. Really? <laughs> so 25 minutes in, we meet Bernie. He's waiting in Tom's apartment for him to get home, and they have a great scene together. This scene is like an encapsulation of what the Coen brothers do so well, because it's a serious scene. It addresses the plot, it moves it forward, there's drama to it, but it's also funny yeah. and sort of like ridiculous because Bernie 
brings up Verna's attempted seduction of him, his own brother. Yeah. <laughs> in their younger years, in order to save him from his homosexuality, which he never phrases it like that. So again, I think there's a segment of the audience that this is probably a lot of flying right by them, what they're yeah. even talking about. Because he says, save me from my friends or my right, sick friends right. or something. So once again, we have incest coming up. So, I mean, I <laughs> people listen to this show and they act like we're obsessed with it, but isn't the point that everyone else is obsessed with it? For how I was saying to you up? before we started recording, it seems like our lives are <laughs> much more boring than like other people's. It's just... This shit constantly is coming up. And I mean, Tom no-sells it. <laughs> He's like, yeah, okay. Well, it was the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> Incest was more common. That's right. One of the best exchanges is when Bernie says, she's a sick twist, all right. And Tom's like, she speaks highly of you. Well, she's family. <laughs> yeah, well, you stick by your family. <laughs> After that, Casper summons Tom. I do like that... I love the scene right before he gets picked up by the two gangster dudes when he's talking to that other guy and he's like, how's my credit? And he's like, like giving the motion like, okay. Is that the bartender? Uh, no, this is like the other random short guy. That Oh, yeah, yeah, when they're outside. Right. Yeah, yeah. Casper's playing that penny game with his son. Oh, yeah. Like, pick which hand the penny's in and <laughs> he picks wrong and then he's like, pick again. And he's like waving the hand that it's in. The, the kid picks the same hand. <laughs> Pissing him off. Thanks for coming by. I just wrote this check out to your bookmaker, Lazar. It's for an even 15, Henry, which is more than I hear you. Oh, but I forget you could always use some money on a cuff, high roll or such as yourself. What do you say? Thanks. Always the yapper, huh? <laughs> well, you're welcome. You want to know why I'm putting you square with Lazar? Not particularly. I want everybody to be friends. I do this. You're friends with Lazar, he's friends with you, you're friends with me. All you gotta do to show you're a friend is give me Bernie Burn Bum. So the deal is I give you Bernie, smooth it over with Leon, you bail me out with Lazar. Yeah, then we're all friends again. <laughs> you, me, Leo, the Danes. We can maybe have tea sometime. Come on, Eddie. Friends is a mental state. Wait a second. I'll think about it. Think about it. <laughs> You hear that thing? The kid's a thinker. That's terrific. Does he want a pillow for his head? Okay, kid. Think about it. It's a mental state. If it'll help you think, you should know that if you don't do this thing, you're not going to be in any shape to walk out of here. Would that be physically? Or just a mental state? That ain't friendly, kid. I make you a nice offer. Tom rejects Casper's offer to square things with the bookie Lazar in exchange for Bernie, even though Tom is in favor of getting rid of Bernie to keep peace. Yeah, He's not I, interested in betraying Leo at the moment. I guess Tom can kind of get into this Casper code thing a little bit because he does have like multiple avenues of getting his debts paid off. In fact, Leo just says that he's just going to take care of it for him. And oh, yeah. He, he, he doesn't want to do it. He wants to square it himself. This ends in a beatdown on Tom that is only interrupted by the police raiding Casper's place at Leo's request. Although he still gets kicked in the face. No one is happy about this, including the police. <laughs> so I guess we should explain. This is prohibition, and yet the two main central figures 
that are running or vying for the control of the town, Casper and Leo, they both run nightclubs that sell booze and other illegal activities, gambling, etc. However, the police and the mayor and everybody are aware of it, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. This is how the town runs. Leo's essentially in charge, but Casper also provides a lot of recreation and fun and money to the town. Right. So now that they're at war, one of the things that they do to each other is when Leo's in charge of the police, he's having them raid Casper's club, but the police don't really like want to do it, or at least the higher-ups don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Because they know this is leading to a war. They just want everything to remain at an even keel. Hitting everybody's pockets. Exactly. Because they're on the take. When I was watching that interview with Gabriel Byrne and John Totoro, they talk about this scene because Gabriel Byrne walks up to that one police chief, takes the match, and like lights it off his badge, off of the badge or, or whatever. Yeah. The and chief. That, yeah. And Gabriel Byrne, that was like his idea because he saw it in like another movie or something. The original Scarface. Yeah, yeah. And he was like... I wish I wouldn't have suggested it because it took like so long to actually pull off like the practical <laughs> effects for it. Yeah. And it was just like kind of a funny anecdote. You don't think of a movie like this having like a ton of effects, but just these little things, it's right. like hard for them to pull off sometimes. Thinking that there's going to be retaliation, Tom requests police presence at Leo's house, a request that will ultimately be ignored. Right. I like when Tom is confronting Verna about what happened to Rug. And they're in either Verna's bedroom or his bedroom. I'm not sure where they are, but Tom says, all in all, not a bad guy if looks, brains, and personality don't count. <laughs> I want that to be what people say about me when really? I die. <laughs> what do you want? I was in the neighborhood feeling a bit daffy. So I thought I'd drop in for an aperitif. Rook Daniels is dead. Gee, that's tough. Don't get hysterical. I've had enough excitement for one night without a dang gun or a weepy in me. I barely knew the gentleman. Rug? Bit of a shakedown, huh? It's not above the occasional grift. But you'd understand that. All in all, not a bad guy. If looks, brains, and personality don't count. You better hope they don't. Yeah, well. Well, none of us the saint I hear your brother is. Who killed him? Leo thinks Casper did. But you know better. I do now. You see, Casper just tried to buy me into fixing his tiff with Leo, which he'd hardly do if he was waging war. So I figure you killed Emmanuel. You were Saint Bernard. Why would I, or my brother, kill Rogue Daniels or anybody else? Rogue was following you. He knew about you and me. And that wouldn't help you play with Leo, would it? You think I murdered someone? Come on, Tom. You know me a little. Nobody knows anybody. Not that well. You know or you wouldn't be here. Not at all, sugar. I came to hear your side of the story. How horrible Rug was. How he goaded you into it. How he tried to shake you down. That's not why you came either. Tell me why you came. The oldest reason there is. Not friendlier places to drink. Why can't you admit it? Admit what? Admit you don't like me seeing Leo because you're jealous. Admit that you've got a heart. Even though it may be small and feeble. And you can't remember the last time you used it. I'd known we were going to cast our feelings into words. I'd have memorized the Song of Solomon. Maybe that's why I like you, Tom. I never met anybody made being a son of a bitch. Such a point of pride. Though one day you'll pay the price for it. Okay, Bernard. 
But until then, let's get Stinko. Let's do something else first. Yeah, so the scene at Leo's house, one of the greats, that fucking, <laughs> oh, Danny boy, right. that song playing. Well, Tom's with Verna. There's an attack on Leo in his home as Danny Boy plays. Some of his men are killed, but Leo fends off the two intruders in the big action sequence of the film that ultimately ends with Leo firing a Tommy gun after the getaway car in the moonlit street in this yeah. like quiet little residential area. Just a Tommy gun that never runs out of bullets. <laughs> Just endless bullets while guys are shooting endlessly at him and he's just like walking with no cover <laughs> just down the middle of the street that's right yeah. it starts with him diving under his bed and shooting the guys in the legs and then picking up the dead guy's tommy gun and firing it up into the window and killing the other guy right after he jumps out of his own window it's <laughs> yeah. a wild sequence. while the house is burning down yeah it's awesome as tom puts it you don't hold elected office you run this town because people think you run this town. Once they stop thinking it, you stop running it. And Tom does reveal the key detail here that he asked the police to go to the house and they weren't there. Right. Which, which, which marks Leo a shift. Doesn't really seem to think is a big deal. But right. it seems to signify that they think that he's unsteady now as the leader right. of the town. And then to make matters worse, Leo reveals he's planning on asking Verna to marry him. Oh, no. So now that war has heated up with an assassination attempt on Leo. Tom does the unthinkable and reveals to Leo that Verna has been sleeping with him behind Leo's back. Essentially, he's desperate to sever their bond and stop Leo from being a horse's ass. Right. Just making a fool of himself. Leo punches Tom all the way out of his club and then cuts ties with him and Verna. But it's essentially too late because it's not about bernie anymore he's not going to just give up bernie and now that the war has started caspar thinks well it's more than just bernie now i can take oh yeah well leo and tom talk about that tom's like yeah i agree at this point getting rid of bernie's not going to do anything similarly to what happens in the glass key or no country for old men even there's a character that just describes a dream and then you're just supposed to be like well what does this mean exactly (laughs) Tom's dream about chasing the hat or not chasing the hat, and the hat doesn't change into anything else, much to Verna's chagrin. I don't know. I don't really know what to make of his dream. No. No interpretation from me. I'm sure it has something to do with not going beyond yourself, staying within your means as yourself. and Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. Cast out and needing a home where he can work, Tom approaches Casper. This... Ultimately, he starts feeling like Mac from It's Always Sunny when he's like, I play both sides. That way I can always win. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, can I talk to you for a second? Uh, yeah, hey. Hey, um, <clears throat> I came up with a really great idea, dude. Yeah? I'm going to play both sides. Why would you tell me that? Should I not? Have- Probably shouldn't, because if you're trying to keep a secret from me, well, now I know. I should have. Should I tell them? No, I don't think you should tell either side because if you're trying to play both sides and they both know, you're not playing anybody. What should I do now? I don't, I don't give a shit. Why are you here? Right? D, quickly. We don't have much time. Charlie and I adopted a paternity test to make it look like Frank is Charlie's dad. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top. So, with this information, I'm going to leverage you guys into making me the head of security at the new Patty's Pub. Mm. Uh, okay, okay. A couple things right off the bat there, pal. Number one, um, never tell one side that you're playing both sides. Yeah. And number two, 
If you are gonna play both sides, don't give away the information before you get what you want. Oh shit. Right, don't give away the information. Yeah. Casper is more than interested, but his right-hand man, the Dane, not so much. They actually wanted Peter Stormare, and they were going to call him the Swede. Oh. But Stormare was in the middle of playing Hamlet or something. Something was going on. Obviously, he would appear in a bunch of other Cohen movies later. I don't know this dude that plays the Dane, I don't think. I recognize him. He definitely has a presence. This is a, a movie of characters, and he is certainly one of them. J.E. Freeman. He was in Wild at Heart. He plays okay. Santos. Yeah. He was in Alien Resurrection, Patriot Games. He was the the strip club guy in Go. Okay. Remember? He's just a guy that shows up in things. Yeah, he's like a character. Actually. Yeah, yeah. He's dead now, too. So is Polito. Wow. So is Finney, obviously. A lot of people from this movie are deceased, well, unfortunately. 30-year-old movie. The Dane is especially put off by Tom when Tom spills the beans, R.E., mink and bernie which the dane refuses to believe because the mink is his boy (laughs) right casper retrieves bernie after tom tells him where bernie's hold up so he offers bernie's location as sort of proof as to his loyalty right he's a public falling out with leo everyone sees it everyone knows about it he's a free agent and so now he's like here i'll give you bernie which is what you wanted all along to prove that i'm not with leo which it is interesting because, I don't know, what are his real feelings for Verna? <laughs> He's not overly nice to her, but he does continue this relationship with her. To some there degree. is an interpretation of the film that says that a lot of it is motivated by Verna. And then when he ultimately takes it too far, I think you could interpret it at the ending that Verna knows the truth right. about what happened. Yeah. And that's why she just is done with him and goes with... Leo at the end. and That's right. That's why, I think so. that's why he doesn't go back with Leo, because it was like, well, I fucked this up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I think probably most people wouldn't even factor Verna that much into it, so I right. don't know. The orders are for Tom himself to do the killing of Bernie out in the woods at Miller's Crossing in order to prove loyalty. Put that's one, the big test. Put one in the brain, for sure. Here's the thing, though. Tom's not a killer. He's never killed anyone. Right. Doesn't really have an interest in it's it. It's not his strength. He's more like advice he's more strategy this is one of the cool things about the film though is this juxtaposition of the woods against like this 20s urban scenario it's just a really unique look and anytime they go out to the woods when they're at miller's crossing it's always overcast which is what sonnenfeld wanted yeah yeah but they couldn't guarantee that because the filming the schedule was too tight they're like well, we can't just wait for weather but then they lucked out and every time they did the scenes out there, it was That's overcast. Awesome. And so it kind of looks like it's the same day every time. It does, out there. yeah. It looks great. This leads to the most famous scene of the film with Tom leading Bernie out into the woods to kill him. The Dane is not there because the Dane went to go look for Mink. So it's two other flunkies. Uh-huh. They let Tom go out there alone with Bernie. And Bernie, at this point, seeing the writing on the wall is just beyond humiliation. Nothing else matters other than trying to stay alive, trying to convince Tom not to kill him. So just throwing himself on the ground and making a huge scene about this. (laughs) I would rather be dead than make this scene. Right. (laughs) Just an embarrassment. I think that it's particularly effective in Miller's Crossing, though, because it's this raw emotion put right up against the rest of the film, which sort of has this lighter feel to it. Like, yes, it's gangsters and stuff, but it's sort of a 
a floating fable right. out of time. And then you have this, like, all of a sudden you have this guy begging well, and sobbing. Bernie's, and, like, comparing himself to Tom. Like, well, we're, we're not like that, Tom. We're not those types of guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. And Bernie proves time and time again just, like, what a sleazeball he is. Oh, yeah. So I think the thing is, and what you're left wondering is, does anything that Bernie's saying actually have an impact on Tom or would he have just never is going to kill this guy? That's what I was thinking, that the killing of Bernie was not really what he wanted to do and it wasn't really part of whatever his plan is at this point. So I don't know that the begging really has an effect on him other than when he finds out that it's sort of done in bad faith. Like, I wouldn't say that it's like, I don't know if fake is like the right word, right? but it's like mildly disingenuous. And when it's sort of thrown in his face later. That he's doing like an act that Bernie is doing. Like yeah, an act. yeah. Kind of. But yeah. Right. Like he doesn't I, want to get killed, but like that he can just turn it off and on. Yeah. Yeah. And he's almost taken to task later in the films. Like, Oh, what were you going to do? All I'd have to do is squirt a few and you'd let me go again. Like right. that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. It registers with him later. And then ultimately he, he does change, but, I don't know. That's the mystery with Tom. You don't really know what he's thinking. Right. Exactly. As Bernie is led to his execution, he pleads to Tom for his life, saying, look in your heart. (laughs) Tom fires his gun twice into the ground to fake the killing for the sake of Casper's henchmen, who are within earshot but cannot see. Tom orders Bernie to run and hide. Casper's men fail to check for the body before leaving with Tom. Again... Tom's luck, no check on the job being done by these right. men. So he's able to just leave. His luck will even increase later the next time we're out at Miller's Crossing. Insanely but, so. Yeah. But there was never a plan that we should get rid of the body or anything. I guess it's the 20s. There's no C- well, they, CSI. They own the police at this point. That's true. Yeah. Because there's been a shift. Tom then calls Mink in an attempt to plant seeds of discord between Casper and the Dane. And as a viewer, you you can sort of start to see what right Tom's plan is from almost his first interaction with Casper, but it, it becomes more and more clear every time what he's I, thinking about doing. I will say, even though there's some double crossing going on and some plot twists, this is far from the most confusing noir plot I've ever had to follow. <laughs> like, there's several noir movies that I get to the end that I'm like, what the fuck? Right, yeah. Well, yeah. they just do a good job of making it clear in the end and explaining right. it, and, and you're you're not too lost. There are noir stuff sometimes where they just throw stuff in there to try to confuse you, and it doesn't really factor, factor into the main story that much, and it's almost like a, a red herring or something. At this point, Leo is weakened, and Casper starts to take over as city boss, controlling the police and using them to destroy Leo's operation. So now things have flipped. While that's happening, Tom is creating tension within Casper's crew, specifically between himself and the Dane. Secretly, he's trying to sway Casper to make him think that the Dane and Mink were in on cutting into Casper's match-fixing, which is what started all of this in the first place. Now everyone's looking for Mink to try to straighten out the real story, but he seems to be MIA. There's a pretty cool scene when the Dane is following... Tom around and he ends up in Verna's apartment. Right. That's when she learns that Bernie is supposedly dead and right. that Tom is the one that killed him. So now that's messed up. Yeah. Between them. Although I got to tell you, people around town don't seem too broken up about it. No. She even says that <laughs> yeah, later. Right. Like his friends didn't even care. Yeah. <laughs> Bernie is just despicable. 
Bernie's still in town, and he comes to see Tom. And just like he always was, it's his way of life. He sees an angle. He sees an angle with Tom, seeing as he's supposed to be dead and all. Mm-hmm. And he wants Casper dead, so he's going to try to blackmail Tom into killing Casper. Right. So that he can come back into the city yeah. and not be killed. And this is the first time that Tom is kind of getting the feeling that it was all a big performance from Bernie out at Miller's Crossing. Right. Again, not that he wanted to be killed, but that he was putting on this big show. It is a little bit of a weird turn from Bernie here because he does only ever come across as weak and sniveling. But he sort of has like a strong moment here where he is getting one over on Tom. Yeah, I think this is his true nature revealed. Yeah. I think the idea that he's just this low-level player who only does little griffs and stuff is right. not true. Which is made abundantly clear by what happens with Mink. Yeah, yeah. With Bernie supposedly dead but actually alive, someone continues to cut into Casper's match fix. So even though Bernie is acting like an idiot by still doing this, even though he's supposed to be dead, and using a, a an avatar... Drop Johnson, who we'll get to in a minute. (laughs) This actually, again, factors in with Tom's unbelievable luck, because this helps spin his narrative, because Casper trusts Tom all of a sudden, pretty much immediately. And so Tom's like, yeah, I killed him. Well, wait a minute. How is this still happening? Well, I told you, you know, hey, right whenever I was going to shoot Bernie, he was saying that, oh, the Dane and Mink were setting him up. Start planting that seed. Right. He's been doing it all along. So the guy that Bernie's using to place these big bets on the fixed fights is a a former boxer named Drop Johnson. Just literally me (laughs) in every way, shape, and form. (laughs) They keep calling him like a gorilla. Right. (laughs) He just sort of screams. (laughs) (laughs) The Dane hates Tom and has been trailing him all over town, waiting for a slip up, thinking he's got it all figured out as far as what really happened to Bernie, and technically, he actually does have it figured out. Right. Next, he learns that Casper's men didn't actually see Tom kill Bernie. These friggin' clueless goons. (laughs) Yeah, one is that Mike Starr. Yeah, yeah. So the Dane and Casper's goons grab Tom up off of the street and head back out to Miller's Crossing for a kill confirmation. You can see it early in their work, like how good... The cones were at like suspense. This walk out to where the body is supposed to be sequence is so great. And that one goon singing or whatever he's doing on their way out there as they just aimlessly lead the way while Tom's basically having like a panic attack. So it's all done so masterfully. Tom fully expects to find nobody and to be executed for it. He even vomits on the way. Right. And the Dane is just like, chiding (laughs) you know he's just like well you know if we don't find a body we're gonna leave a fresh one here but instead the group does find a body that had been shot in the face and disfigured beyond recognition by birds everyone there has no choice but to assume the corpse is bernie but don't you get the sense that the other two goons not the dane are like yeah we totally expect to find the body it's unclear they seem to just kind of be beneath the level of comprehension of anything so they just are along with it yeah they've already gotten their beating because the faces are like bruised and everything so i guess if they don't then they get to kill another guy and if they do they get to be proven right (laughs) yes like oh see he did it right 
But this is the biggest moment for Tom's luck because yeah, you can say all you want about his scheming and masterminding. It's he fully expects to be killed here. Oh yeah, there's no way out of this situation. A couple of quick, fun cameo appearances in short order. Sam Raimi right. playing. I don't know what he's supposed to be. I guess he's with the cops. He shoots that guy that comes out of that bar that they throw <laughs> yeah. a bomb into, or right? Whatever, <laughs> which insane... sets off that whole machine gun battle yes. where he gets killed. <laughs> And then Francis McDormand playing the mayor's secretary right? in a quick little moment there. Tom once again falls into tremendous, unexpected, and helpful luck. Unbeknownst to him, when Bernie returned to town, he killed Mink and placed the body out at Miller's Crossing, hence the stiff that we just saw. Mink's killing also helps Tom because... Mink's disappearance adds fuel to the fire Tom is trying to start. He continues to sow doubt in Casper's mind by arguing that the Dane and Mink, who is supposedly alive but actually dead, are the ones betraying him. Tom's able to cite Mink's sudden disappearance as evidence. Tom's setting up a situation where Casper will have to decide between him or the Dane, which would have been inconceivable at the start of this because... He trusted the Danes so much, but Tom has been able to chip away at chip it. away at it slowly, which you do think maybe Leo just saying that right at the beginning of the movie about yeah. the Dane knowing about the fix too. Right. Planted enough of a seed in Tom's mind and potentially Casper's as well. Casper continues his preoccupation with ethics and dishonesty, and the Dane does himself no favors by not playing the subtle game that Tom plays and instead just being like, let's double cross Tom. Right, right. And Casper, even though he's a gangster and he does all this illegal shit, is not a fan of that kind no, of thing. He, no, well, he's like, we had a deal. Tom did his part of the deal. Yeah, and you goddamn didn't think Bernie was dead and then you went out there and you found him dead. So what are you talking about? Right. We learn from Bernie that Mink is the one who shot Rug Daniels, and it's never really explained what happened exactly. True. I think Bernie just says Mink panicked and it was a confusion or something, but over what? I guess maybe the implication is that he felt like he was being tailed and thought that Rug was going to rat him out for cheating on the Dane. Right. With Bernie? Yeah. It definitely seems like they're implying that Mink thought he was being followed. It's possible that Verna and Bernie live in the same house or something. True. And that's where the confusion came, because Rug is trailing Verna. That is a possibility. But I don't know. It's never right. really clear. I do like whenever Tom gets on the phone with Bernie and he just decides to play the Uno reverse card, and he's just like, no, actually, I think I'll blackmail you, you dumb fuck. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Yeah. It's mutually assured destruction right. anyway. Yeah. Like, you can't blackmail me right. by <laughs> revealing yourself to be alive. That's dumb. <laughs> but, of course, it's revealed later that he's not really trying to blackmail him. <laughs> the he's reverse just, Uno card. <laughs> he's just trying to incite yeah. him enough to get him to show up. Right. Which works. You've already pointed it out, but at this point in the film, Tom just constantly getting beat up. <laughs> And then at, at random intervals, Lazar's men show up and they're oh, like, I know. give the money. And he's like, no. And they beat him up. And they're yeah. like, well, Lazar likes you, so we're not breaking any bones. That's right. Everyone <laughs> seems to kind of like Tom. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's just a down-on-his-luck loser right. when it comes to the betting. 
Things finally come to a head when Tom shows up at Casper's house claiming he's spoken to Mink, actually attempting to engineer a surprise meeting between Bernie and Casper. But the Dane is there waiting too, and Casper must decide between Tom and the Dane. Tom's sort of short-sighted here, not realizing the Dane's in the room. (laughs) It's like talking shit about him. He enters a giant room and doesn't look behind him. Yeah. So the Dane over here is basically the same plotting, and we know as the audience that despite his many faults, the Dane is actually innocent in this sense, as far as Casper yeah, is right. concerned, and yet he has to hear Tom say this shit, yeah. which is confirmation of what he was afraid of. But what he doesn't know is how far along it's gotten with Casper. Like, Casper basically believes Tom. You thought I'd quit, huh? Uh-uh. I followed you this afternoon, and I wondered why Einstein would want to talk to a gorilla. So I grabbed the gorilla... And I beat it out of them. You give me a big guy every time they break easy, not like you. Is there a part? Or are you just brushing up on your small talk? I like that. Pull on the fire. I'm impressed. The gorilla didn't know who stiff we found, but I can fill that in. You killed Mink, you son of a bitch! It was Mink, you son of a bitch. It was Mink. And by God, I'll hear you say it. Is this how you talk drop his story? Come here, bum. I am going to send you to a deep, dark place, and I am going to have fun doing it. So when the Dane starts choking Tom out, Casper intervenes. It hits him in the head with like a fireplace shovel. <laughs> yeah. Insane He's just weapon. completely unhinged in this. Just so much sweat pouring <laughs> off of Polito. Yeah. And then Looks he, familiar. Whenever it's shown to be that the Dane is not dead because Drop Johnson, who happens to be in the room, starts that howling again. Right. Casper runs over and gets the gun and he shoots the Dane in the head. He's like, Always put one in the brain. <laughs> like with blood on his face right. And right into the camera. It's completely insane. 
So Tom's like, all right, it worked, my ridiculous plan. I got Casper to kill the Dane. I also told him Mink was alive and that Mink was in on it and that Mink is going to be here at this certain time, but it's actually going to be Bernie. I'm setting something up here. And then on his way, he runs into Verna in the rain on the street, and she's got a gun, and she thinks that Tom killed Bernie. So he tells her, I didn't kill him. He's still alive. She seems to believe him, but she's pissed. Oh, yeah. Just perpetually pissed. Right. (laughs) The apartment building that Tom lives in is called Barton Arms, and there's also some other little references to Barton Fink in the film because what ended up happening was they started working on Miller's Crossing, the Coen brothers. They started writing this script, and they got writer's block because they were sort of getting bogged down with all these details as to what exactly was going to happen. Uh-huh. They go over to a friend's house. They watch the movie Baby Boom. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know if that really has anything to do with it, but I saw that cited in like the story several times. Okay. Like, which is what, like a Diane Keaton yes. movie from the 80s? <laughs> right. And then they go home, and they write Barton Fink in the middle of writing Miller's okay. Crossing. And then they return to Miller's Crossing and they finish it. They ended up making Barton Fink with Tesoro like the next year or whatever. So there are little references to it throughout this film. The most notable is Barton Arms being the name of the building. Setting up a situation with Bernie and Casper, Tom rightly assumed that the first one to be seen by the other is likely to be killed. Tom arrives to discover that it's Bernie who has killed Casper, thinking it's more or less all over. Bernie is tricked into handing his gun over to Tom. Well, Bernie doesn't believe that Tom is really a threat to kill him. Right. And Tom convinces him by saying, there's really no reason for us to kill each other. We don't have anything on each other anymore. It's over. Yeah. But then things take a turn. Uh Uh-huh. Tom makes it clear that he intends to kill Bernie right then and there, possibly for the blackmail attempt, possibly in order to tie up loose ends, possibly just... Because he doesn't like him. Yeah, yeah, he's just annoyed with this dude. Right. Bernie again begs for mercy, saying, as he did at Miller's Crossing, look in your heart. But this time Tom asks, what heart? Mm -hmm. And shoots him dead. There's a lot to think about with this response, I guess, in terms of the character of Tom. Is he implying that because of the events of the film that we've witnessed, he now no longer has a heart? Or has he always been this same guy and never had one? And just didn't kill Bernie at Miller's Crossing the first time because he thought that it would be advantageous to leave him alive. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure. And I think it's left ambiguous. But you always get the sense that there's a goodness to Tom. I do think that he is changed because at the beginning of the film, he was fine with other people killing Bernie to just make this go away and be easier and save everyone the stress of war. And then when he's presented with the opportunity to do it, he ultimately doesn't do it. And then later he does do it. So I do think that he changed. But I don't know. He's such a mystery the whole time that you never really get a full read on how moral he actually is. Right. What he's capable of or incapable of. He pays off his debt with Lazar. I'm assuming he just uses the cash that he takes out of I was surprised that that was enough. Just the loose cash that Casper has. It's... It's implied that that's... Well, at one point, Casper says, I'm writing you a check for 1500 which is more than you owe. That's okay, yeah. Before. It's a wad of hundreds, so... I guess, yeah. I know it's the 20s, and you have to like put that into perspective, but even when he's talking about the bets, like putting like 150 down on something, you're like, $150? <laughs> <laughs> I 
How does he not have money to pay that off? I think he bets 500 on the one. Yes, yeah, that's probably true. This was also like right on the verge of the Great Depression. That's I guess right. It probably hadn't happened yet. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it, with inflation, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. But the guy is in organized crime. <laughs> like, apparently, it hasn't been too fruitful for him. Or I guess he's just. Well, he like, lives in like a shitty apartment. I know. Seems like the only people that live in like cool houses are Casper and Leo. Whatever income he's got coming in from the organized crime, he's always got more than that riding on a horse race. Yeah, that's the way to live. Yeah. <laughs> right on the edge. <laughs> that's right. With Casper and the Dane dead, Leo resumes his post as the only boss in town on the day Bernie is buried. Verna having won her way back into Leo's good graces, reacts coldly to Tom and walks back to her car. Oh, yeah. It's over there, my friend. She says, drop dead. Right. Leo tells Tom that Verna has proposed to marry him. He then offers Tom his old job back, but Tom rejects the offer and stays behind watching Leo as he walks away. There's like one last tip of the hat. like He lowers his hat kind of on his yeah. face, like it's signifying something. Yeah, there's a lot to read into it. I do think that Verna knows the truth. I do think that she pieced it together. Well, it becomes clear that he wasn't lying when he said Bernie was still alive. Right, because they, he's dead a second time. Right. Like he was buried in the pet cemetery or something. Yeah. But I'm saying I think she realizes that Tom set up this whole plan. Uh-huh. And that he probably really killed Bernie. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, right. I think she knows. Either and that or she's over. putting on a show of being and, that cold for Leo's benefit. That's I also mean, possible. I mean, she was... You don't always get her whole thing either. And also on the Blu-ray, like the Coens talked about like how she's not really like a normal or typical femme fatale who's usually like doing something motivated by money or... Oh, yeah. She's definitely like not right. a femme fatale at all. Yeah, yeah. She's really only ever doing any of this stuff seemingly to protect her brother like it's a noble cause even though her brother's a piece of shit yeah and tom does have a lot to say about her which is neither proven nor disproven in the yeah. movie like he has she's a, lot a to grifter s- too right he's she, always saying these things about her while he's carrying on this sexual relationship with she her. does more or less admit that she's using leo to protect her absolutely brother, but then she still wants to marry leo after right which Bernie's dead. Maybe you're reading, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it's like, is it possible to say that she's doing that at Tom? Yeah, that's what a I little mean. Bit? Like, I feel like it's possible that even if she didn't figure out exactly what happened to Bernie, that she's being extra cold to Tom just for Leo's benefit. Because there is this ongoing thing between her and Tom that makes it seem like there is more to their relationship. Like, it's not just a sexual relationship, there is some feeling between the two of them. I don't know. No? No, I'm not saying no. I'm saying I don't know. Right. Maybe from her perspective. Seems like Tom just doesn't even give a shit. (laughs) But then again, there is the theory, though, that he was really only motivated by her a lot of the time. Some of the time, I guess. Yeah. He's motivated by his love for both Leo and Verna, and then ultimately returns to neither of them at the end of the film. True. I don't know. So that's Miller's Crossing. Thank you to Ryan for the recommendation. Like I said, we'll get to... Nikki's next month and then we'll have a big month in june with four so that's the the future of the listener request right now if you didn't hear your name at the beginning let us know we'll yeah get that in there 
We don't want to miss anyone, that's for sure. Yeah, because we are definitely not doing them after this Really? <laughs> the window will slam shut. <laughs> no, we love doing them. It's just that we have our own things that we want to get to. And this podcast has just turned into like so much work for me <laughs> that I just want to focus on the only the things I want to do. That's right. We need to get back to that. No, it's fine. Like I said, this would have been one that we may not have thought to do on our own, so it's always cool to be reintroduced to a movie that you hadn't watched in a while. And yeah. it was great timing with the Criterion disc coming out because I buy like a ton of Criterions. I have so many of them, as do you. So right. we probably would have bought this anyway. Yeah, although I hadn't gotten it, and then this was coming up, and I was just like, well, I'm just going to buy the Criterion. Well, it had just come out Yeah, yeah. in like February or okay, something. Okay, right. I know. <laughs> You're like, well, I hadn't gotten it. The window had passed. I couldn't get it anymore. Okay, well, it wasn't one of those ones that I pre-ordered and needed to get as soon as it was available. What are you doing? What? What? Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. All right, so let's do some recommendation before we wrap it up. I'll go first. Nothing from me. Oh, wow. It's been <laughs> weeks and you have nothing to give Yeah, us. I mean, I've watched stuff, but it's like, I, I don't know. I've actually been watching a decent amount of like physical media, which I don't really... If I can't say what it's streaming on, then... Well, you can always look it up, but okay. <laughs> we'll skip on Matt. I just have something I wanted to talk a little bit about. I'm enjoying it, although I would say it's like a hesitant recommendation. I don't know that everyone would necessarily be super into it. I mean, this sounds like one of my kind of recommendations. <laughs> it's the new show on HBO Max from producer Michael Mann, who also directed oh. the first episode and hopefully is going to direct the last two. But he doesn't direct any of the ones after the first one. It's rumored he might be directing the last one of the season or whatever. I don't know. It seems like it might be a one-season show. I'm not sure. Talking about Tokyo Vice. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize Michael Mann was involved with that. I have seen it up there. Starring America's sweetheart, Ansel Elgort. (laughs) That's right. Who I've never really been particularly a fan of, although he learned Japanese for this and is like speaking it fluently in the show, which is crazy. Seems like a lot of effort went into this. This is... Not necessarily the same as Miami Vice. I know that there's the Michael Mann connection and everything. Uh The main character is a journalist, not a cop. Although, Ken Wanatabi. Oh. Is that how you say his name? Yeah, I think that's good enough. Wanatabi. He is a cop, and he is a main character, too. But there is a noticeable drop-off in terms of the quality of the directing after the first episode. But I do think that people on Twitter were slightly over-exaggerating that. I think to the majority of television viewers, they're not going to really notice too much because I still feel like TV is a writer's medium primarily. Uh The story is interesting enough. You're plunged into this Japanese culture as your main character is American, but he speaks Japanese too. He's trying to become this journalist. He gets entangled in some crime stuff. The Yakuza is involved, of course. There's these female characters that work at a club and their whole job is to like sit at people's tables and show them a good time and get them to buy drinks and you're thinking like are they prostitutes and then that's addressed later and i guess they're not okay (laughs) but the main female lead is a a girl named rachel keller who i was not familiar with and i'm looking at her imdb right now seems like she was on the show legion 
Oh, yeah. And Fargo, I'm not sure which year of Fargo. Maybe the first one, which I did watch. Some other stuff, not really a ton of movies or anything. And then Ella Rumpf. Oh, yeah. The older sister from Raw. That's right. She's also in it as one of those girls as well. She's not the female lead. Great name, though, Ella Rumpf. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was cool seeing her in something. For fans of Raw, most of the stuff those girls are in from that movie are foreign language films that don't get much play in America because such a small percentage do. Yeah. So it almost feels like they're never in anything, but their careers are just going on in other countries. But this is cool. She does speak English in it. I think she must know like a million languages or something because she wow. speaks Japanese too, it seems like. This is a wild show. Yeah, really? I would say that it's a little bit slow pace. It seems like a slow burn. The story is taking its time. It starts in 2001 and then it jumps back to 1999 because it is based off of a real memoir oh, written okay. by a real person who is one of the executive producers as well. Ansel Elgort was also an executive producer, so it wasn't like they were going to replace him digitally with Christopher Plummer <laughs> after the fact. <laughs> I like that Christopher Plummer is now dead and he will always be the go-to for that just right, because right. of all the money in the world or whatever yeah, that yeah. stupid movie was yeah. called. <laughs> so yeah, I'm enjoying it. If you like crime stuff, plunged into the Yakuza world, that kind of shit, organized crime, I'm just seeing how it goes. I'm not saying it's like amazing or mind blowing yet or anything like that. But how I've many of the episodes? Have I you think watched? there's been five. Okay. I've watched three. Gotcha. But I think they dumped three at once or four at once or something. So it's only been out for a brief time, and there's already five up there. Yeah. I don't really know how much traction this is getting. It's one of those things where they're probably not sure how much to promote it. I don't know. But check it out on HBO Max if you like Michael Mann stuff. Which I do. Do you have another one? No, that'll be it. Okay. So thanks for listening. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. I don't think we did this at the beginning. That's okay. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. People really want to know the schedule of the listener requests, so we really had to focus on that. Yeah, then just... 20 minutes of Oscar talk <laughs> even though weeks we just, after anyone could possibly care. We're like, we really don't want to talk about this, but, and then proceed to talk about it. <laughs> That's yeah, the genre of the show. Really? Talking about stuff we don't want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. If you'd like a sticker, let us know. We can hook you up with oh, one yeah. for free. And if you didn't hear your name at the beginning and you feel like you did submit a listener request, hey, let us know. We'll add you to the list. And we'll talk to you next time. Hopefully we're back on a regular schedule. No more illness. No more travel. That's right. Try to get back into the flow for a while, at least until summer. Yeah. There might be some weeks off this summer. I think there might be another break. (laughs) I think that's okay. But we're going to try to go hard until at least to finish June to get these listener requests back on track. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
Hey, so did you bring your condom for tonight? You brought a condom with you? Yeah, I figured I might as well, you know? I brought a little bottle of spermicidal lube, too. But you laughed in my face when I said I'd be having sex tonight. Yeah, that doesn't mean you shouldn't just always be prepared. You know, you didn't even bring a condom? No. No, I mean, that wasn't part of the plan. I can't believe you did this without consulting with me about it. Why are you talking about a plan? We've never discussed, like, any plan, but you keep saying we have a plan. I had, like, a general outline, you know? I was gonna go down on her for, like, several hours, okay? She would love that. She'd be smitten by that. She'd go out with that. Or I'd dry hump the shit out of her leg. Okay, well, I just... I don't see the harm in bringing one little condom. And one little bottle of spermicidal lube? Yeah, one little bottle of spermicidal lube. Evan, that's psycho shit, man. It's not. It's like Charles Manson shit. What do you think Becca's gonna be psyched that you brought a bottle of lube? Oh, Evan, thank you for bringing that lube for my pussy. I never would have been able to handle your fucking four-inch dick inside my pussy without that gigantic bottle of lube. Okay, that's fuck. That's enough. These girls are 18 years old. They're not dried up old ladies. They're good to go. Then I won't bring the lube. Don't make me feel like that. I thought it was cool. This is a nice kind. Let me see that for a second. An impressive kind. That's kind of cool. That's fucking cool. dumbass. Lube. Oh, that's fine. You brought lube. So you owe me six bucks. Because I'm not walking over there to get it, and it exploded.